0: Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on September the 7th, 2014. It's amazing how, when it comes to talk giving a blurb, a thousand things will happen that day. Unpleasant, mind you, and you have to go out and deal with them, like fictional junk vehicles and that kind of thing. That's what I do, at least. It's amazing what comes along here and the things you have to cope with because we're dealing really with um, not as junk that's sold to us, even when it's brand new junk, but old junk as well as I am, because everybody's idea of poverty is rather relative, isn't it? Uh, some people who can't uh, build their third house uh, would say that they're in, in poverty. Other folk are, are hunting for jobs and uh, or even working at some job, but they also have the same idea that... And this is from emails I get, too, from a lot of people who are genuine in the circumstances. But it's amazing to see how they judge poverty, because of all their latest cell phones and their, all their latest apps and all the rest of it and all the things that people seem to think that they must have today. I don't have a cell phone and I don't have TV either for that matter or cable or anything else. All I have, and I wouldn't have that if, if it wasn't necessary, uh, is the, the the satellite and so on for what I'm doing here and talking to you. I wouldn't even be touching a computer, in fact, because it's not a, a help, it's a hindrance. It's a virtual reality designed to alter you and keep you occupied endlessly by other people's ideas of what you should believe or think or have as what you think is entertainment. But in actual fact, there's always propaganda embedded all through it, in fact. It's amazing to me how the people who uh, gobble up all these cop movies, and ter- now it's all terrorist movies, internal terrorist movies, and they gobble it up, and always give you the good-looking young guy who's who's got a wee bit chipped in his shoulder, but, uh, and he's tough as nails, of course. Uh, but they like that because it, that's a stereotype which turn on the young females. They use the, the same technique with the, from the James Dean onwards for the singers. The pouting thing, you know, the kind of angry little young guy look. Uh, but somehow uh, that appeals to you, especially young women. And maybe a lot of older ones as well. The bad boy, you see. They like bad boys. So, And of course, with all these terrorist movies, it's the same thing. Uh, the guy who, who's got a chip in his shoulder and they're always ready to fire him. It's always the, the, the one. He's the only the one for the job, you see. When the crisis comes along and he has to deal with it. And that's how they're all made. It's a, it's a standard formula uh, in stacks of movies, you see. And if you believed in the movies, it would certainly, which most folk do unfortunately today, uh, then their idea of the world around them is very, very scary. Because it's, it's the, the, that which turns them on, the excitement is meant to also put them in a state of almost sheer panic, but also to make you subservient to the SWAT teams and and the militarization of the police, and that's what we to touch on tonight. Because I had no idea what to put it talk about tonight, because I really have been fixing a junker vehicle uh, uh, even all through the night and most of the day as well. But here's really. Um, a story that most people are neglecting altogether. They go into the causes, and some, some of them don't even touch on the social problems, especially in the U.S., but now in Britain and elsewhere, too, through mass immigration and the crime that came in with it, too. I can remember many, many years ago, for instance, in Britain, uh, many years ago, there were big howls and protests at the time from the fake Labour Party which was really almost communist, and actually it was communist when the top party members were, and that got exposed many years later, of course. But they were members, uh, Karykary members of the Communist Party, uh, who were sworn to overthrow uh, the Western systems completely, Uh, which almost made me wonder how on earth they could possibly um, not ban it in the first place, ban communism, simply straight out ban it. But uh, they didn't, did they? Which made me start to think that's going to be another th- something else going on here with communism. Because why wouldn't they ban something that was going to destroy your whole way of life, even if it wasn't really designed by you in the first place? It's always, by the dominant minority in every country, in every system that owns the system. So why wouldn't they ban it? And of course, once we went into the reading very early on as to why, Uh, the Soviet system got up and running in the first place, and then you find out that many of them who led and became generals and so on in the Soviet Union for the rebellion, for the actual Bolshevik rebellion, were trained inside the U.S. and funded by big bankers like Bernard Baruch and and Schiff and a whole bunch of them were involved in the financing of the revolution to get it all going and planning it and training uh, the guys in terrorist activities, actually, to overthrow the existing system. No matter what your opinions happen to be on the existing system, the fact is that the the Western countries, uh, the banking system that runs all of us, finance a system that was essentially terrorist. And this terrorist organization killed many millions, rep until its end. And uh, there's many movies now, more documentary ones, I should say, to do with, for instance, the Stasi system, when Eastern Germany was totally taken over by the Soviet system, then World War II, and the Stasi system was, was really uh, a totalitarian system. Everyone was terrified of the Stasi, they were experts at bugging folks' apartments, rooms, everything. And all you had to do was to give an opinion on something that wasn't quite kosher. And you just disappeared very, very simply and quickly dealt with. And yet here we are living through, since 9-11, this whole anti-terrorism nonsense in the whole West. Uh, this shouldn't have happened in the first place, because after all, when you think about it, the Middle East was pretty stable from the, from, from the citizenry of the West point of view for an awful long time, regardless of who the West had put in power there, Saddam Hussein and these guys. Um, but he kept the place stable, and and these cities were first world cities. And the whole they're all lying in rubble today, and of course in Libya too, we know what happened in Libya. Uh, they, they demolished the infrastructure. The West went in and disliked it in Iraq and plundered it for its oil, its water and its resources, and they're putting pipelines across desert in different countries as we speak, and they have been from from the beginning of the the war. So we're living through long-term agendas. I've gone through all of that stuff, that long-term agendas, from the New American Century Project and the group involved in it. uh, And it's still going on today under uh, Obama, beginning with Bush Jr. and going on under under Obama. But even then, long before that, before they had to trouble the conflict with uh, Iraq, uh, before uh, he invaded Kuwait, the big massive oil fields, they were owned by the Western Boys, who set it up in the first place. In fact, Bush Jr., I think senior too, uh, were, were instrumental in that. Bush got his uh, start, its training, and how the world really works, as he was pointed to look after that for a while. Other characters involved, they always put them into oil systems, like uh, Maurice Strong, same thing, the big UN guy, globalist, uh, who was picked up by Rockefeller when Strong was young and groomed for his position as the environmentalist and all the other things he's planned. He really is a clone of George Bernard Shaw, uh, the, the top socialist of the Fabian Society and H.G. Wells too, because they laid upon the, the, the whole socialist agenda on the line, how experts would rule, the intelligentsia of the experts would rule us all, logically, supposedly, according to them, and decide how much of a population they wanted, who live and who would die, and you had to have a good reason why they'd allow you to live there would be no unemployment because they'd either put you in jail or execute you, it was very very simple if they couldn't retrain you and they all uh, give the same uh, pattern of dialogue and so on in their books but, you, but as I say, uh, Kuwait uh, I can remember before the invasion of Kuwait by Hussein he had been complaining vehemently to the United Nations and to the west of these Americanized uh, companies in Kuwait that were doing horizontal drilling they called it for oil I think it was even some of the the science magazines maybe even popular mechanics or something but they showed you how these oil rigs rigs could actually drill down and then do a, a, a horizontal turn and go underneath the ground into neighboring countries and suck out their oil And Kuwait was uh, was guilty of that It was discussed uh, By uh, Hussein At the time To the British and American diplomats Who said it was none of their affair And that's why he went and invaded them But of course they wanted them to, to invade So they could get an excuse for the war Which lasted all through really Gulf War One, And to the, the next invasion Of actual Iraq itself But it's still going on today is all these countries on the tick list of the new American century group uh, are being taken out. And they're not finished yet, by the way, because a lot of things are accomplished in war. Remember, Carl Quigley said, we get more done in five years of war, on the total socialist expert-driven agenda, than 50 years of uh, persuasion and propaganda. And sure enough, that's what happens. That's why they're on a roll to date for the 21st century and brought it in for the 21st century uh, and uh, all these agendas have to be fulfilled until the lifestyle you're left with at the end of the century will have, have no resemblance at all to what went before. And there's many, many uh, sides to all of this, all participating in this big agenda, the Millennium Project and all this rest of it, Agenda 21, etc. And uh, I heard one uh, far con man, uh, I suppose a, a lefty, environmentalist who's funded and got a great salary by the big foundations just other night in fact on a late night uh, radio talk going through his usual lies about uh, promoting the biofuels and, and all they have to do is program uh, existing cars computers in a certain fashion to allow it to use this biofuel which is very high and, and, uh, and uh, the, the the content of, a, of, of really an alcohol-based fuel, basically alcohol fuel. They call it ethyl ethylol, ethyl it's which is an, an ethyl alcohol. Basically, uh, this stuff runs so hot that the, the American manufacturers of autos just recently had to admit it's burning out the engines much, much faster. It's uh, The small engines, uh, manufacturers across the world... Have been complaining for years about it as they keep adding it. According to UN treaty, the percentage is going up all the time. And your regular gasoline, and uh, apart from giving you a lot less miles to gallon, uh, and heavily, being heavily subsidised too by your, your tax money, by the way, as government throws it at these projects, and that's how they make it at the moment reasonable, as they call it. Once they have them all running on this this stuff, uh, then they'll take all the subsidies off, as you well know. But This stuff literally burns the pistons, uh, the aluminum pistons, in the engines. And uh, if you take a new engine apart after producing it for maybe two or three weeks, you'll find all these pitting bits in it where it it just takes little pings off it and chunks off it. And you think it's been through uh, 60 years of use. Of course, uh, um, what those tell you is some of these cars which are designed to take both fuels... Uh, or higher percentages or oh, you can put titanium particles in and various other particles in to, to strengthen them etc but as I say it runs so hot uh, that uh, it, it causes the engines simply can't cope with it they'll burn them out much much faster you get less miles to the gallon and uh, what you also get a lot more water in your gasoline because it attracts water being almost uh, a, a pure uh, alcohol uh, so, uh, Material basically uh, attracts it very heavily Water particles and you rust out your tank you never nails in your lines much quicker These are the things I don't want to talk about About it. and I, I'm, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be other ways to, to, For better fuels and so on I'm sure at the very high tech side of things they, They've got things which can work on uh, Very little or whatever uh, At reasonable cost But that's not, it's not intended that you have anything Like that in your lifetimes because, I mean, I mean, lifetimes, like I'm talking about generations, because you've always been run by those in control. And believe you me, this ethanol uh, racket is another con game uh, being played upon the people because they don't want you driving eventually at all, except those under Agenda 21, it states quite plainly, who that have essential vehicles only. Essential being uh, the law, uh, civil servants, bureaucrats, police Ambulances, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, because you're not—it actually says in the Agenda 21 program that you have no private vehicle. Remember, this is this is the 21st century we're in, folks. All this has to be accomplished in your lifetime. But, but what did come across quite interestingly enough uh, in that uh, talk, the pure propaganda talk that was on last night, uh, what came across was also uh, through all the lies this guy was putting out there, deliberate too, definitely. Uh, what came across to me, was um, how happy they are uh, that, that uh, fewer folk are driving. And he called himself also I a mean, millennialist. And, people, and the, the hostess, who was part of the con game, uh, said, What is that? Well, it's the, the, the generation born from 1980 onwards. And then she chipped in the host and she says, "She says, uh, Oh, uh, they've had less brainwashing. That's what are all for, this. Ryan and say, no, well, actually, they've had more brainwashing, obviously, to be all for this, to save the planet. We're all used like stupid guinea pigs. I mean, stupid ones, because guinea pigs and rats and so on are anything but stupid. We're stupider because we can only be fooled by words uh, and, and pictures, symbology, in other words. So a picture is a symbol. Moving pictures are simply symbols too all strung together. And you can show horror stories and terrify youngsters at school to make them go along with any agenda that you want. It's quite simple. And then the the constant propaganda barrage through regular media will eventually alter their minds. They're already persuaded, and they already have their default position set in them when these topics come up. Every generation has had its own brainwashing, remember, and... Uh, Uh, it's it's unceasing. Always grab the youth first, work on them heavily, and they're yours. They're they're yours for life, basically. They won't change their opinions, really. It's quite interesting. Uh, I listened to another uh, radio guest, not last night, night before, I think it was, or the night before that, and he talked about the studies into uh, people's ideologies he never touched on the, how they got to their ideologies, what programmed them to, to become to these things. But he did go through the usual thing, because there are always doing studies to see how, again, to see how different generations have different opinions, because uh, what they're really doing through all these studies is to find out if the really heavy indoctrination to, the, to a generation born, say in the 1980s and the 90s and so on, are vastly different, if their propaganda is working or not. That's really why they do these incredibly detailed uh, ongoing studies and it is working unfortunately it is working because that's why you can't talk to say younger folk on, on different things that have already had their pavlovian training and the, t- the topics come up if they hear anything negative they switch off walk away uh because and, and they, they get reset to their default position like a computer and that's what they call it by the way and in, in, uh, neuroscience is default positions for humans now, on another topic, getting back to what I said at the beginning, uh, we've got militarization through all of society since 9 11. So many things that are so important. Seeing you know, the details of the incidences that go on, the incidents that go on every day are, are really unimportant. It's collectively that they're important because you have to see what's behind them, uh, not the things that happen or how they're portrayed as been happening, uh, but but the, the collectively, what is this group of things pointing to? What's the point, the point and purpose of it and so on? And um, I've looked at the U.S. a lot because uh, they've had fairly unique problems for a long time, understood by many, mind you, as to why they've had various problems. Uh, you've had different groups in the U.S. there some who were marginalized at one point, other ones who came in with to run the Communist Party for the U.S., who tried to get other groups, uh, minority groups, to lead revolutions, in, in other words, be used for revolutions, uh, uh, to get another agenda through. But it's always one group using another, you see. And many of the leaders of uh, minority groups eventually caught on to that as to actually who was running them. It's quite an interesting story in itself, and that would take forever to go through uh, the history of it. But this particular book uh, was sent to me. And remember, I don't get money uh, for plugging anybody's books. And um, I don't know that I've never met the author or talked to the author or written to the author. But it's a book which is well worth getting a hold of. It's called Rise of the Warrior Cop. this pertains not just to the US but to Britain, although it's mainly the US what's happened in the US. You can see this mirror image happening in Britain and other parts of Europe today. And the book was by uh, Radley Balco. His name is B-A-L-K-O. And as I say, I get nothing for mentioning it, but the fact is he certainly did his homework uh, in getting the history of the U.S., going way back to its founding, and how the Constitution constantly got changed and changed and changed and amendments and so on. And I've often meant to talk about that because I've noticed different houses of Congress coming in with their agendas on the table, and they had to change the Constitution. And how they do it is by reinterpreting the Constitution or the part that they want to put forward to re- so they bring in the batteries of lawyers who go through it in a almost talmudic style and, and find out well this this could also mean this word could also mean that and this phrase could also mean that and no matter how they stretch it they'll they'll get what they want you see and uh, and that's what that's their job that's what they do but this particular book uh, uh, says um in the the cover it actually says in the cover the last days of colonialism taught America's revolutionaries that soldiers in our streets bring conflict and tyranny. As a result, our country has generally worked to keep the military out of law enforcement. But according to investigative reporter Radley Balco, over the last several decades, America's cops have increasingly come to resemble ground troops. The consequences have been dire. The home is no longer a place for sanctuary. The Fourth Amendment has been gutted and police today have been conditioned to see the citizens they serve as an as an other. And then it says an enemy. Today's armoured up policemen are a far cry from the constables of early America. The unrest of the 1960s and so much to do with that that isn't touched in the book as to why the unrest in the 60s was going on, really. And that's the story of... Uh, Uh, those who are trying to get minority groups to to start revolutions, use them. Anyway, it says here that uh, the invention of the SWAT uh, unit in the 1960s, which in turn led to the debut of military tactics in the rank of police officers. Nixon's war on drugs, Reagan's war on poverty, Clinton's COPS program, the post-9-11 security state under Bush and Obama, by degrees, each of these innovations expanded and empowered police forces, always at the expense of civil liberties. And these are just four among a slew of reckless programs. In Rise of the Warrior Cop, Balko shows how politicians' ill-considered policies and relentless declarations of war against vague enemies like crime, drugs, and terror, have been blurred during uh, have blurred the distinction between cops and soldier. His fascinating, frightening narrative shows how, over a generation, a creeping battlefield mentality has isolated and alienated America's police officers and put them on a collision course with the values of a free society. Just to review a little of the book. I'll mention that on page 206, Rise of the Warrior Cop, it says, In 1989, a friend asked Peter Kraska if he wanted to uh, tag along for a U.S. Coast Guard exercise on Lake Erie. Kraska is a criminologist at the University of Eastern Kentucky. His students describe him as demanding, whip-smart, and in the words of one female student, a strangely hot lumberjack. He agreed to go along, mostly out of curiosity, while on the trip, Kraska learned that the Coast Guard worked closely with the U.S. Navy on drug interdiction efforts. The Navy itself would intercept boats or ships that fit drug courier profiles, but would then have Coast Guard personnel on board to conduct the actual searches, seizures and arrests. One Coast Guard officer flatly admitted to Kraska that the procedure was a way of getting around the Navy's policy, prohibiting its personnel from participating in civil police actions. Kraska was uh, both alarmed and intrigued. The experience started him down a road of scholarship focused on examining the ways in which the U.S. military was increasingly being drawn into enforcing drug laws. In particular, Kraska began looking into indirect uh, militarization, the rise of SWAT teams and other paramilitary police teams, what might be called the criminal justice industrial complex. And that's a big one because in this book he goes through (laughs) The amount of money that's been spent to, to uh, buy your tax money, actually, uh, to buy all the uh, used equipment. And, and much of it, too, this used equipment, heavy artillery and various other things, is not that really old. Anyway, it and the increasing intensity of public officials to address social problems. very important. Uh, public officials addressing social problems with martial military, in other words, rhetoric and imagery to suggest that military-like solutions... Uh, from the wars on crime and drugs to the heavy weaponry, and vehicles that police were beginning to use the, the proposals that uh, juvenile offenders be punished in boot camps. Uh, I remember, in the 80s, actually, in uh, all Western countries, that suddenly became popular to get young offenders into these militarized boot camps run by ex-military personnel. Anyway, Kraska obtained funding uh, to conduct two broad surveys of police departments, and their use of SWAT teams. His resulting report systematically documented a previously unheeded two-decade insurgence of militarism into just about every city and county in America. The numbers were staggering. By 1995, 89% of American uh, cities with 50,000 or more people had at least one SWAT team, double the percentage from 1980. Among uh, smaller cities, population between percentage uh, Um, uh, population, sorry, between 25,000 and 50,000, 65% had a SWAT team. By 1995, a 157% increase over 10 years. Nearly 20% of all police officers in these towns served on the SWAT team, a phenomenon that Krasker dubbed the militarization of Maybury. By 1995, combining these figures for cities and towns, 77% of all American cities with over 25,000 people had a SWAT team. Kraska then asked police departments that had maintained SWAT teams going back to the early 1980s to report how many times the teams had been deployed over the years and for what reasons. Again, the numbers were jaw-dropping. In the early 1980s, The aggregate annual number of SWAT deployments was just under 3,000. That's them being sent out. By 1995, it was just under 30,000, from 3,000 to 30,000 deployments. In 15 years, the numbers of annual SWAT team deployments in America had jumped by 937%. Some SWAT teams, Kraska found, were conducting up to 700 raids per year. What was precipitating the, the surge in SWAT activity? The drug war, almost exclusively. That's the answer that, that was given. It says Logan, Utah is a typical example of the phenomenon. As a, of 2011, the city had just under 50,000 people. It hadn't had a murder in five years and had recently been rated the safest city in America. Yet, since the mid 1980s, Logan has had its own SWAT team. Because uh, I ask, but what does a SWAT team do in a city with no violent crime? It creates violence out of non-violent crime, and it says this is a quote. It says we haven't really had a whole lot of uh, uh, had a whole lot of barricaded subjects, and certainly we haven't had an active gunman shooter. Department spokesman told the local people, uh, paper. But it was nice to have the SWAT team around just in case. In the meantime, he said it's mostly used for assistance on high-risk search warrants. High-risk meaning all or most drug warrants. We've destroyed some doors over the years that maybe wouldn't have gotten destroyed if there wasn't a SWAT team, but that's all in the name of trying to make a high risk situation more safe for everyone. Some 43% of the police departments in Kraska's survey told them they'd used active duty military personnel, active duty personnel, military, to train the SWAT teams when it first started, and 46% were training on a regular basis with active duty military experts in special operations usually the Army Rangers or the Navy SEALs. This was the goal of the Joint Task Forces set up during the Bush administration to encourage cooperation between local police, federal police, and the military in order to foster a battlefield approach to drug enforcement. In a follow-up interview, one uh, department SWAT commander told Kraska, we've had special forces folks who've come right out of the jungles of Central and South America. These guys get into the real uh, SHIT. All branches of military service are involved in providing training to law enforcement. All branches of military. U.S. Marshals act as liaisons between the police and military to set up the training. Our go-between. We've had teams of Navy SEALs and Army Rangers come here and teach us everything. We just have to use our judgment to exclude the information like, at this point we bring in the mortars and blow the place up. They exclude that kind of information to the press, you see. And by the way, this is quite an amazing book because they go through the fact that they actually uh, do have the mortars, mortar bombs, for God's sake, which is on battlefields, and much, 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 much more, of course. But this is the this is the this is a fantastic book because it goes into the history, as I say, of the chipping away of rights over over centuries. They talk about the castle doctrine uh, that uh, Came from England. It was held up for an awful long time, and the castle doctrine was that the, the man's home is his castle. It didn't matter how humble it was, and um, how for centuries, even local sheriff, if he had, but had, had have lots of information to to even go up and and knock on that door uh, to serve any kind of warrant, um, and they had to knock first and produce the evidence, and they had to give. By the way, the person, the resident, time to get to that door, plenty of time, uh, and and open that door for them. They didn't come in and just use a battering ram automatically. And they had to show the evidence, tell them that, and all the rest of it, and go through the procedure and how they whittled that down. But the U.S. God, had the same doctrine. And it's interesting that um, I've mentioned the Rockefeller so many times, Nelson Rockefeller and others who were really uh, pushing for all this uh, system back in the 60s to be brought into the U.S. of militarization and the war on drugs especially. And he wanted the no-knock law that would do away with the Castle Doctrine. And uh, and he put a bill forward and they followed that. And I think in New York State initially, other ones copied it until it became this normal. Uh, They simply come up with a battering ram and smash through and and go through the windows and everything like the military does, you see. Uh, And this book is very, very precise. Lots of uh, quotations, lots of um, information from the military to cooperating with the police uh, constantly. How they're brought in as advisors, supposedly, when they supply them with special battlefield uh, equipment for, for a particular task. Uh, that's what they do abroad when they say that the U.S. has sent advisors over. Technically, they're not supposedly involved in the killing and shooting, but you know, they're right on the battlefield, they're doing it too. Of course they are. Now, getting back to uh, this book here and continuing uh, from that last quote, um, it says the commander added that he had received a letter from a four-star general expressing concern about the sort of training the department was getting. Back in the 1850s, the Cushing Doctrine had allowed federal marshals to summon U.S. troops to enforce domestic law. More than 100 years after the controversial policy was repealed by the Posse Comitatus Act, federal marshals were now... Soliciting elite US military personnel again, not to enforce domestic law themselves, but to teach civilian police officers how to enforce the law as if they were in the military. He then goes on to say, the author that is perhaps most disturbing was Kraska's finding that these paramilitary police teams and aggressive tactics were increasingly being used even for regular patrols. By 1997, 20% of the departments he surveyed you, surveyed used SWAT teams or similar units for patrol, mostly in poor, high-crime areas. This was an increase of 257% since eight, 1989. SWAT's proponents argued that all of this build-up was in response to a real problem. After all, violent crime had soared in the 1980s, nearly 1990s, but the SWAT teams weren't generally responding to violent, violent crime. They were usually serving drug warrants When Kraska and colleague uh, Louis Kubelis compared changes in violent crime rates to changes in the U.S. SWAT teams in the jurisdictions they surveyed, they found that only 6.63% of the rise of SWAT deployments could be explained by the rising crime rate. What they've done really is criminalized uh, a lot of, uh, and changed the procedures in order to use the SWAT teams. You understand, if you create SWAT, I don't care what kind of bureaucracy or government officialdom it is, If you create it, it will always expand its powers uh, to justify its existence. That's the nature of technique and technique is through every uh, bureaucracy and governmental department there happens to be. They never start and finish where they they were supposed to start or finish for that matter. Uh, They continue, they grow, they expand their powers to show how they're important uh, once they're on the gravy train, more cash getting thrown at them and lots of uh, uh, high salaries getting paid at the top, etc. They, they must then have to justify their positions by making themselves appear more necessary, you see. You now back then, uh, as it says this about Kraska's findings of his investigation, His findings prompted a surge of media interest in the phenomenon of police militarization. The New York Times, Washington Post, Boston Globe, National Journal, and ABC News all covered Kraska's study and also ran their own investigation into the issue, but nothing really changed. Politicians and policymakers didn't seem to notice, or if they did, they didn't much care. Actually, what it is, is they've all been given the word from the top that this is the, the way it's to be. That's how things really work, folks. Uh, if you think the politicians are really independent, and so on. Uh, There's a lot more to it than that. But it says, uh, What exactly did all this uh, media attention accomplish? It's not quite clear. It resulted in no fame, no money, and no appreciable difference in the phenomenon itself. Of course, that wasn't Kraska's fault. Congress, state legislators, and other politicians either weren't paying attention or just didn't find the reports particularly troubling. As I say, the word obviously came from the top. This was coming up. It all planned for the 21st century, folks. It says, in fact, the phenomenon only continued to pick up momentum. The year before Kraska's reports were published, Congress had passed, passed the National Defense Authorization Security Act of 1997, the biennial bill to fund the Pentagon. One provision in the bill created what is now usually called the 1033 program, named for the section of U.S. code assigned to it. The provision established the Law Enforcement Support Program, an agency headquartered in Fort Belvoir, Virginia. This mission was to further grease the pipeline through which hardcore military gear flows to civilian police agencies. This was when he talked about Kraska talking to two elite, uh, elite departments or military personnel who were training cops. And the cops said, Here, you got a, a chance to talk to them before the police turned up for their training. And these uh, elite members of the present armed forces uh, active members in our words said that uh, this is going on all over the, the proliferation of SWAT teams he says this is the elite member of the military is talking one of them said We've, uh, we have serve an arrest warrant to some crack dealer with a 38 uh a, 38, a pistol with a full armor the right SHIT and training you can kick ass and have fun the other trainer, trainer jumped in he says most of these guys just like to play war meaning the cops and so on, they get a rush out of search-and-destroy missions. Now, search-and-destroy missions, that's the term they're using to go into the different neighbourhoods in the U.S., search-and-destroy, which you use in warfare, instead of the, the, the bullshit they normally do, he says. Next site, he says, when the trainees arrive, all active-duty cops, either on a SWAT team or soon-to-be, Krasker described what he saw. But, but the, but the thing is, they are getting a kick out of it, you see, they're getting a high. They may join. It blends in with all the movies that they're getting brainwashed with and grown up with too. And Craster described what he saw when the when the active duty cops um, came in. Several had lightweight uh, retractable combat knives strapped to their belts, just like they'll see on the movies. Three wore authentic authentic army fatigue pants with T-shirts. One wore a T-shirt that carried a picture of a burning city with gunship helicopters flying overhead and the caption "Operation Ghetto Storm." Another, wrote, uh, another wore a tight black t-shirt with initials NTOA for National Tactical Officers Association. A few of the younger officers were, uh, wore Oakley uh, wraparound around sunglasses on heads that supported either fly- flat tops or military-style crew cuts. You see, you're dealing with folks. Your police are now a military force. Now this part here is awfully interesting because this Kraska, who's a professor, member, who studies these phenomena, he says, most interesting are Kraska's observations about his own state of mind during the training session. There's a point in his narrative where one of the trainers asks him if he wants to take a turn with an MP5, that's a submachine gun. Kraska is reluctant, but after some prodding, gives the weapons uh, a try. Remember, he's there as an observer and to doing an official as a study. You see, and he says, and he was, I don't know if he's pacifist or what, but he says, I fired at a body-sized target, and just as this officer surely anticipated, I made all the mistakes of someone who'd never fired an automatic. He took some ribbing and then was surprised to uh, hear himself defending his masculinity to the group of virtual strangers by pointing out that he had grown up hunting with shotguns. Presented with a shotgun, he then redeemed himself with what he called, this is Kraskow, the guy who's investigating this, he calls a personally satisfying demonstration. Kraskow found himself working hard to fit in. You understand, I've mentioned this so much before, how this bonding process gets militarized. It doesn't matter what you join, uh, whatever club you join, you're now part of a group. You're the, the in group. It's very, it's, it's a social phenomenon. I watch with higher mammals too. So it's very, uh, the big boys know how to use this intensely, especially on young people, and how to con- make them conform and have them obedient to the group until everyone outside the group is an, is, is literally that an outsider. You're you're one of them. You see. And that's what elitism is all about. But it says here, so he's finding a hand to him. And he's, he's observing himself as he's doing this. So he, he, he showed off with a shotgun in front of them, uh, defended his masculinity by the jokes that come along with it, you see. And he found himself working hard to fit in, uh, in his training session, and win the approval of the officers, even though he, uh, he was there as an observer, and likely would never see them again. But here's the part he also felt a rush of power, awfully importantness. And this is what he said about that. I had an intense sense of operating on the boundary of legitimate and illegitimate behavior. Clearly, much of the activity itself was illegal, although reporting it would never have resulted in it being defined as criminal. I felt at ease and in some ways defiant. You get that power rush. I've had this experience in the past when field-researching police officers, and I realized that in a sense I am basking in the security of my temporary status as a beneficiary of state-sanctioned use of force. This is likely the same intoxicating feeling of autonomy from the law that is experienced by an abusive police officer. On a personal level, what disturbed me most was how I, as a person who had so thoroughly thought out militarism could have so easily enjoyed experiencing it. This study illustrates the expansive and seductive powers of a deeply embedded ideology of violence. Now this book goes through various presidents and how they keep adding more and more to this uh, militarization program of the police, domestic police. Uh, by giving new bills out there and so on for the war on drugs, etc., etc. Uh, it's now the norm. It's, uh, it's uh, Remember, too, that this all, uh, uh, interestingly enough, coincided uh, being set up years ago in preparation for what would, be, what would become during Nixon's time as the threat of, of internal rebellion, for instance. When he, he started up FEMA, etc., uh, but uh, since then, the long-term planning that I see in all of this is incredible. Long before 9-11 ever came along, and preparation for 9-11, order to... How else could you get the whole agenda for the 21st century through? Massive agenda, uh, with, with all social aspects uh, changed, and social um, behavior, everything, the way you view everything, can change for everybody. Uh, In every aspect, even the earnings and so on, what you're here for, and uh, down to wellness, uh, supplanting uh, your own personal financial income. How well do you feel? Well, I'm sleeping on the streets, but my wellness is pretty good, doctor. Um, Austerity, all these things, you see, you could never ram it all through uh, without lots of preparation mentally, Uh, On people, indoctrination, massive environment thing There's too many of you all breathing out CO2 Eating meat, blah, blah, blah And all the usual things we've gone on on with Since the days of H.G. Wells and the Fabian Society It's an ongoing program But again, too, you have to get internal mechanisms in For for this total control as well And training people to simply obey, obey, obey And be very afraid and obey Or it will kill you uh, because a lot of people have that uh, mentality now in the States, they're terrified of the cops. Now, I mentioned before, too, uh, they wanted uh, a military mindset for a generation to grow up, to become either soldiers for a perpetual war, which we're in today, we've been in for a long time now, uh, by giving them the video games that were specifically designed, and programs, Go to the archive section at cuttingthrothematrix.com, and you'll find talks I've given about these programs, I said it long ago, uh, to, to, to militarize the mindset of children and dehumanize them to an extent and dehumanize uh, the figures on the screen that would be the enemy. That's always the enemy in all these games. But these games were designed by the military. I've read the articles and from the mainstream and from the, even the manufacturers of them, of the games. And the, what, and, the, and, the, and the incredibly ongoing studies that, that uh, survey the people who are growing up with these games and how they view life and how they are desensitized to killing, you see. They're desensitized to that. You combine that with this countless movies on all oh, those terrorists, terrorists within. Here comes the one who happens to be for the movie. They can deal with it all and kill all the bad guys. And they want to the youngsters want to be on board with the winners. The winners are those with the black outfits who have government authority and no one gives bullshit to the winners, you see. They're tough guys, even if if they're little wimps in, in reality. They're now tough guys with an outfit on carrying the big stick, which is now the big machine gun. And that's a sad state of affairs, but it was done deliberately because they also needed the same mindset to go straight into the military. Uh, for for the and it fitted perfectly well from Gulf War One into the invasion of Iraq. Uh, that that, these, that was the whole generation on the video games already preconditioned and desensitized to killing. It was seen from different clips that have come out um, from gunships shooting down from a distance where even the victims can't even see this gunship. And, and and blowing up And shooting up reporters And everything else and, and the language they're using Is language they would use Out of playing a video game When they're killing real people As I say This book goes through Programs like COPS C-O-P-S By Clinton when he was in it says that Congress rarely makes federal funding contingent on states passing a particular law or policy. I think speed limits are drunk driving laws tied to federal highway funding. And that's what you think it goes for, right? It's much more difficult to take how a police department puts a big federal grant to work in day-to-day operations. And so the COPS program threw billions of dollars at police departments under the pretense of hiring What they said was community policing, basically, friendly officers, and so on. This is Little League Game. In other words, that's what they, you'd think, oh, they'd be cops at Little League Games, just a friendly cop. I and mean, many police officer, police agencies were actually using the money that were given to militarise. That was always always the agenda, obviously, because they can't do it without permission from the top to militarise under the the guise of putting out friendly cops on the street. It was to mil- money was going to military. One of the first to notice that this what was going on in Portland was Portland uh, journalist Paul Richmond, the unfortunate truth about community policing, as it's currently being impl- implemented, is that it's anything but community-based. He wrote in 1997 an article for alternative newspapers, PDXS. Instead, he wrote in Portland, The grants have resulted in increased militarization of the police force. Richmond also found in Portland that, ironically, or perhaps not, a federal program touted as a way to encourage local police to get more involved with local communities was actually federalizing local law enforcement. that's an important part of it too. At the same time Clinton was pushing cops, the administration and Democrats in Congress were pushing policies like troops to cops bills, management training programs for police agencies based on federal models of policing, and a bill that would allow local police departments to fund community policing programs with asset forfeiture money obtained through the Justice Department's equitable sharing program. That's what they call it when you steal folks' money. The program that allows Local police departments to ignore state forfeiture laws by teaming up with the federal government. It's fascinating what really is a form of corruption going on, but really what is corrupt when, when the government can do it and they make it simply legal for them to do by passing certain laws with nice fancy uh, passive sounding names, isn't it? Anyway, Richmond found that while the overall cops to citizens' ratio fell in the early 1990s in Portland between 1989-94, the number of officers in the city's tactical operations department jumped from 2 to 56. The two officers in charge of the city's tactical teams had formerly been in charge of the city's department of community policing. Richmond also obtained a copy of the city's uh, Community Policing Strategic Plan, passed by the city around 1994. Among the plan's objectives was to increase the police department's involvement with the federal ATF and the Oregon National Guard. It included implementing at a local level Clinton's One Strike in Your Out plan for drug use in public housing, which allowed for raids on public housing tenants, uh, followed by their possible eviction, based on no more than an anonymous tip. Richmond was alarmed that so many progressives in the city were embracing the community policing plan based on little more than its pleasant-sounding name and that it was coming from a democratic administration in Washington and administered by a progressive city government. The devil was in the details, and no one had bothered to look at the details. Well, it isn't just that you don't bother to look. Uh, You won't know, unfortunately. A lot of folk who did look, until you see what what they've said, as they oppose a opposed to what you actually witness yourselves When you see the SWAT teams on the streets and things like that With the with the various armoured vehicles And heavy duty military gear and, and etc That's the thing It's done by deception And you'll find that most of these darn things always are That's the way it really works in real life folks um, uh, <laughs> I really have done a lot of study as to why people keep voting. Um, as I said, too, the other night I heard a guy talking about the surveys on why people make decisions and have their beliefs and will believe in them until they die, uh, regardless of all subsequent evidence uh, that's come out in their lifetime, to the contrary of what they're actually believing. And they'll always vote this way or vote that way, always. Uh, and strangely enough, what's really interesting one of, the def- one of the definitions of madness uh, is th- doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Exactly the same thing. It's like trying to add the same sequence of numbers up, expecting a different result. Uh, but they keep doing it and keep voting and uh, because they've always done it that way. And they vote for the same party over and over uh, with its usual promises of uh, some kind of future utopia, whatever it happens to be that never happens to materialize. It's quite interesting. Politics is just a game of deception, and the deception is to keep the people so passive as you watch a whole way of life that you're used to, which wasn't, wasn't natural to begin with, believe you me. every, every dominant minor, The same dominant minority in every era literally shapes your belief systems and your behavior to suit themselves at the top. And when they change that behavior and authorize the change of behavior and promote that change of behavior, um, you would ask why. As I say, I can remember when I was young watching the BBC, small you could get at that time, uh, promoting all these supposed uh, rock stars, uh, and they were having interviews on the television. Remember, everybody at the BBC at that time, everybody there had worked at Eton. You had to work at Eton to get into it. It's part of government. I was involved with uh, MI5, all the rest of it. Still is to this day, but that way, uh, MI5 and so on. Uh, a big propaganda department. And um, Adam Curtis, has already said, in one of his, his talks, is his very good documentaries. Uh, they gave the people the culture of, say, the 50s and 60s, and before that, uh, the culture that they wanted the people to have and the behaviour. But then they changed it for the 60s and then they promoted, as I say, I can remember the, the guys uh, falling off seats, being interviewed, these supposed uh, stars that suddenly came on the scene. Uh, literally, fought, and, and the interviewer doing his, in his Oxford accent, his tee-hee-hee, aren't we naughty kind of deal. Uh, and that's what was pushed out uh, for the youngsters to idolise and copy. That wasn't a mistake, folks. N- nothing is a mistake in the culture industry. And um, the promotion of drugs was done from the top, completely the top in the US and and through movies and TV and the rest of it. It's uh, been awfully cool. We also know during the Clinton time there was big scandals about the drugs coming in from Latin America to Arkansas. The CIA involvement came out. We know that... Um, the drugs for guns uh, scandal with Oliver North, Colonel Oliver North. Uh, that came out, and little bits were allowed to be broadcast from the congressional hearings. And it's, an, it's incredible where it's been authorized to be sold on the American streets to get money for another operation that the Pentagon's up to. To youngsters in the streets, and here you have at the same time the rise of the SWAT teams to supposed combat it. Who's a bad guy? The guy who's smoking a joint somewhere. Meanwhile, as I say, the drugs for gun scandal or guns for drug scandal was bringing in cocaine and heroin to be sold to the youth throughout uh, the US, and no doubt some of it would get to Canada as well. By, the, by the Special forces that were involved, the CIA, the Pentagon, and all. For goodness sake. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. It was fact, folks. And it had come out during the congressional hearings. And um, but it was for a good cause, you understand, to get that much, to get, get something, because they needed to, to get these guns to somebody else for another uprising. I mean, you understand there's a bigger game here because those at the very top are not stupid if they're, if they're bringing in drugs. And to sell on the streets, to get cash for operations, and at the same time promoting your tax money to supposedly fight the drugs by you and militarizing the police at the same time. This falls into a a big long-term goal, folks, and you're living in the days of the grand finale of this goal, obviously, under the war on terror. War on drugs, war on this, war, war on terror, all these supposed wars. Government cannot have internal wars on anything. That's the bottom line. But you take it so casually—the war on smoking. Get it normalized. Get it. Get it normalized in your vocabulary, your th- thought process, and so on. And and then get you, you bring it into war on this until it's simply war on crime. And then what happens with crime? They keep adding new dimensions of, and re-evaluating what is criminal and what is not criminal, etc., etc. And if this goes on, you know where it will lead to eventually. You're in the Stasi system right now, where the police, uh, everybody's combined now, eavesdropping on everything you do and say, and Twitter, and, uh, and think, uh, etc., they know your opinions and everything. They've got you all f- filed and categorized, your, your personality profiles, everything about you, updated all the time. And do you remember the war and free, for freedom? The, the freedom war for Iraq? The Iraqi Freedom War, they call it. They invaded Ara- Ara- Iraqi freedom. Everything's Orwellian doublespeak, folks. With pleasant, like names like freedom, it's better than Iraqi invasion isn't it so you think you're living in reality do you really really want to persist in believing you're living in reality and you think because you, they give you a computer they can monitor everything you do on you're gonna you can fight it with the computer do you really believe that folks oh Remember, I've gone through the history of of, uh, the military using the computer long before they gave it to you, and they had discussions for years about giving it to you, not because they'd eventually have to, but because they wanted you to have the darn thing. How else could they have total surveillance on everybody? Hmm? And I've gone through the psychological. Testing they are done on you all They understand you forwards, backwards, upside down You name it They know you completely and for Like Rockefeller and many others have said the same thing They don't have to force something on you They can make you give up all your rights Because there's certain benefits you can get. Oh it's so easy It's so easy Yeah I can do this and it's so easy It's better than doing this or that Or using money or can you Swipe my phone it's so easy If that's the case, it's it's goodbye humanity as we know it. All getting ready for the next phase, you know, where the so called millennialists will come in with a Millennium Project, which is Agenda 21, and your life is going to be ordered from birth to death if they decide that you should be born in the first place or you should meet, your parents should meet. Or even be parents, so just mate with this person, authorized mating for procreation. Well, sorry to harp on, folks, but as I say, I've been dealing with junkers all, and by the way, junk, but I don't mean uh, drugs, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about vehicles, old darn vehicles, things like that. And I don't get peace to do with much, much else these days. Everything's a real struggle, incredible struggle, and I couldn't even begin. To tell you what I have to do here I couldn't even begin It's, uh, it's that bad Anyway I hope you get something out of this And uh, this book is well worth getting a hold of As I say, I don't get any money for promoting any book whatsoever and uh, But the, the history in this book And the statistics and all the studies That he's done And quoting other official surveys And so on it's just astonishing. And it's one thing I should mention too, as part of these bills, I've noted, I've read the articles years ago on the air, that put so much money into trying to recruit directly from uh, guys coming out of the military into police forces. So you already have them battlefield ready, basically. And this is their, uh, what you have to today. It's, it's, it's quite something, folks. And even the picture cover on this book is something. Uh, the rise of the warrior cop, the militarization of America's police forces—it's uh, like looking like—and I and I knew by the way I made a reference to this at the time, it's exactly like something out of Star Wars, where you see these faceless humanoids, basically. And one was white, one I think was 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 another color, and they're the good guys. And here's the bad guys, and they've got all this body armor all over them. The reason they're faceless is because They are not individuals That's the impression See when you're uniform You're uniform You're not, you're not singular The personal identity is gone It's a force you see It's, it's coming at you like, like a, a horde of viruses Or bacterium or whatever That's the impression to terrify you And that's What uh, Has been brought on deliberately uh, it doesn't happen by happenstance It doesn't happen by individual departments Saying we want more cash t- To do this We want to be like the, like the guys on TV and in the movies It's not just that it's the, It all comes from the top folks Because they have big agendas Always have big agendas And uh, that's the nature of the beast We're on one agenda it encompasses many, many, many aspects of, your, In fact, all aspects of your life Your thought, your behaviour even down to your, your personal opinions, it's all given to you, folks. So, uh, from Hamish Massia from uh, Ontario, Canada, which is the only day it hasn't rained for uh, since the last, uh, this is snow melted. Uh, it's good night to me, your God, or your gods go with you.